The Start On Demand. On demand. Winnipeg Jets legend Dale Howarchuk joined us this morning to tell us how he's holding up after his last round of chemo treatments and to share with us what he hopes to see come out of the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll speak to a Winnipeg man who was the victim of a carjacking on Monday during the day while his 88-year-old dad was still in the vehicle as the thief drove away. And if you could hide out anywhere you wanted in the world during this pandemic, where would it be? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Wednesday, April 22nd podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you so much for joining us today on The Start. Yesterday, Greg, I was saying that Tuesdays are always my worst day, but uh, I feel great today. I actually went to bed at a decent time. I made it to bed. Never mind went to bed. I made it to bed by around 8 o'clock. Got a full six hours of sleep, which is about the most I'll sleep in a, in, in a row anyway. And uh, yeah, I woke up feeling wonderful so and plus when you look at the weather that we're going to experience today uh, what did Kayla say a high of 13 16 tomorrow 14 Friday yeah man virtual high five virtual hug over the weather and good on you for getting a six hours sleep that feels like a victory I was just saying to Jeff Forche Wednesday I bet you if you go back over my school record would have been the day I skipped the most was Wednesday. Really? But when you start Wednesday, it's the worst. But by the time you get about halfway through Wednesday, it's like, oh yeah, baby, we're on the other side. That hump day analogy, no truer analogy in the English language, Lorette. I I was laughing throughout much of the day yesterday, Brett. I was sharing with my family how you said you woke up yesterday, thought it was Friday. Then you're like, oh gosh, it's only... It's only Wednesday, and then you're like, nope, it's Tuesday. And then and then I, yesterday, for much of the afternoon, skipped a day and thought it was Wednesday. So I was already on my Thursday, not to confuse everybody here. But it's the worst feeling when you think you, you've made it through part of something or, you know, over the hump or the hill or whatever, and then you realize you're still climbing the damn thing. Darn thing. Sorry if the kids are listening. Yeah, oh, whatever. Yeah, like I was full on, full, like thinking, why... How did I make it to Friday night? Like, I didn't even do the Couch Potatoes live stream on Instagram or Facebook. Like, why did we skip that this week? I went through an entire series of questions where I, before I finally woke up fully and, and understood what was happening. But that is the worst. Uh, so, But I'm, I'm in better spirits today. And I also want to thank, I just was going back through the text messages at 204-780-6868 yesterday regarding my check engine light. And I can't believe how many people texted suggesting, you know, get a scanner. Uh, One listener offered to scan my car for me. Turns out engineer John heard that and he has a scanner in his car or in his van. So he went and grabbed it and hooked it up to my car and immediately got the, uh, the error code or whatever it had uh, took like 30 seconds 
to to get the code. So when I took the car into the dealership, I mean they were kind enough already. Like the 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 service advisor Chris, who's been, always been great to me. Him and Rennie, there's they're sort of like a tag team. They've been wonderful to me over the years over at Murray and. Uh, uh, he just went and grabbed the scanner right away. He said, I, I, we're not going to charge you to, to check this. Um, but uh, I did uh, leave the car there, uh, and I'm expecting I'm expecting an unpleasant repair bill. But uh, my car's nine years old, Greg. I mean, how old you're, how, how, what's the longest you ever held onto a car? <laughs> I'm on uh, 35 years with one. Oh, uh, you've been in his garage, right? Yeah, yeah, There's a car, right. an unusable car in his garage right now. I haven't driven it for 10, 11, 12 years, but uh, I've had it since I was 15. So uh, there is that. But it's, yeah, it's the good old uh, P14 code, right, uh, Brett? That crankshaft uh, situation going to be affecting you potentially, you know. You know, the good old oh, P14. Yeah, yeah. P- yeah, P0014. Yeah, all over that. Yeah, that it's the camshaft and the timing. Uh, that, that, that I understand I, exactly I what it. that means. <laughs> I, knew, I knew it. Yeah. Yeah, McNabb, McNabb knows too, right? I mean, it's the, it's the camshaft timing, right, Loren? We all didn't know. I, didn't I tell you what I thought it was? It said camshaft timing. And then I was like, yeah, that uh, obviously it means it's a simple camshaft issue where it's taking you to the bank at the wrong time. <laughs> Because it mentioned, like, there's a bank one in there. And I was like, oh, it's a P0014. Yeah. It's a solve there. Simple, guys. Come on. Easy. Simple. I, don't you ever think that some of these, you know, they, they make the names complicated just yes. so the average person can't. You say camshaft to me, my eyes have already glazed over. I'm like, uh-oh, that sounds like a big deal. It's probably like the rug. Like Maybe your rug needs replacing. you like... Uh-oh. New floor said, mats will fix he that. Said, he said camshaft, and meanwhile, it's just like the mirror. There is definitely a problem with the car. Like, it chugs. It's been chugging real bad to the point where I'm I'm getting scared that it's just going to die on me uh, while I'm sitting in traffic. So, I mean, it's a nine-year-old car, and it's it, I don't have a ton of kilometers on it. I've got 131,000, I think. So, it's just, you know, it's getting old. It's breaking down. It's time for a new automobile, so I'm going to get the work done. I've got some body work that has been lingering that I've never had done on the car. Uh, I should probably get that done, and then I'll sell it, and hopefully I'll be able to uh, get something different down the road. But what can you do? Corvette. A cor- there is a beautiful, like, lime green, almost even fire engine uh, green or yellow uh, Corvette convertible in the showroom over there. And uh, I just said to the guy at the, the rental counter, does, that car, it looks like it's sitting there just to taunt everyone who works here. Like, you can't drive me. You the can't unattainable drive me. goal. Yeah, yeah. That would be great. Dream, though. the impossible dream. No, I can't. Afford, I could never afford a Corvette. Plus, um, I, I never learned how to drive a standard Really? Yeah, really. Oh, I could teach you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. I could. I, I sorry. taught my. I taught my. Well, he's my high school boyfriend then, but he's my husband now. I, I taught him. My dad taught me, of course, growing up on the farm, and I've taught a few people tree? over the years. I love driving a. I, I wish the standards were more standard. I love driving a standard. It gives you like a sense of real ownership over your car plus it's fun and it keeps you more alert in some ways i think you have to think constantly you know downshifting upshifting and if you're driving a a load of fertilizer let me tell you oh gosh what happens relationship (laughs) that was a very specific memory oh yeah hasn't she she's told that story about 
not being able to get up the hill. A liquid liquid load up the hill in Minidosa Valley. That's not easy to do. Did it once? Actually, I didn't even really do it once. Couldn't get up the hill. Couldn't get up the Uh, hill. You know, this is a very specific story for a very specific group of people who have ever driven a truck full of any liquid. But there you go. So Denny texted us here at 204-780-6868 in response to the question, where would you hole up if you could pick anywhere? And Denny says, so long as I had a good supply of food, a comfy bed, and a reliable toilet and shower, I feel like I could spend a lifetime in the library. That is a wonderful idea. And uh, it, that I'm hoping will get me back into a library some point in the near future because I always mean to go to the library and instead what do I do? I pick up my remote control and watch television. Backling McGarry McNabb, Jeff Forte is here, <laughs> Kelly Moore, Jeff Braun. Jeff Braun, why don't we start with you, buddy? Where would you go if you could go anywhere for the pandemic? Uh, I agree with all of Denny's assertions as far as the food and the toilet and the bed go. And if I had all that... I would gladly plop down for the rest of my life on an island somewhere in the South Pacific. Anywhere at all. By yourself or with somebody? Yeah. Either or. (laughs) Yeah. His answer is yeah. yeah. I'll be there, and if you can make your way to my island and find me, go for it. (laughs) How about Zewataneo? Uh, I don't... I've got a weird problem with uh, Mexican vacations, so... Oh, okay. Only, Only that it's because Mexico is quite literally the same piece of land that Winnipeg is on. So when you go to Winnipeg or you go to Mexico, I, I sit on the beach there and I think if I had to, I could just walk home. And that's, whereas if you go to Hawaii or something like that, you're really nice and isolated and away from it all. Suck the fun right out of that. Oh my God. Oh, I love the way Jeff Ron's brain works. Home from Z Watanabe. Okay, Jeff. I, I pulled the, I, I, That was the reference uh, from Shawshank, right? That's where they went at the yep. end? Okay. Yep. Yep. Uh, Kelly Moore, what about you? Well, uh, as Jeff Braun and I usually disagree vehemently about everything, uh, La Padita, Mexico is where I could happily wait out this pandemic for however many years I have left on this planet. Uh, uh, it is an absolutely beautiful little spot, and... Uh, yeah, it would be no difficulty there whatsoever, as long as there were the amenities that Denny spoke of. Kristen texts us, easy question, the same place I'd hide out, hide out in a zombie apocalypse, the zoo. A well-stocked commissary, countless animal friends, and many fences to keep everyone else out. It's more applicable in the zombie situation because my daily tools become handy uh, zombie fighting weapons. <laughs> Loren McNabb, what about you? Oh, well, you'd have to... I've been thinking a lot about this, about how I wish I had already been on vacation somewhere with family that I miss so much. Like my sister's overseas. My brother uh, lives in the Caymans. You know, I got another brother on the West Coast. If I could have been with one of them, wherever they are, then you just have more people to hang out with. So people would be key to me. Uh, but it would be nice to have both the ocean and like a huge, you know, if this is my dream, I've got like an acreage, you know, with like a jungle backyard or maybe something in the Serengeti. So there's... I don't know. I want a huge plot of land so I can hike, plus water, plus family. Boy, plus you don't pasta. ask for much, do you? Listen, hey, this is a dream, <laughs> is it not? Is it our dream scenario? God, at least I'm not walking home from Mexico like Ron. Don texted us something sweet here. Don says, I hunker down wherever my wife is. Oh, Don. Oh. Jeff Forte, you? Um, well, I, I would like to say somewhere hot because that'd be great, but uh, maybe something like uh, West Edmonton Mall. 
You oh. know, you got a hotel, so you got all the beds. You have showers, toilets. You got the theme park. You got the water park. You got uh, you got everything. That's gr- awesome, man. That is yes. such a creative idea. That water park is sensational. And you get it all to yourself. All to yourself? Okay, maybe have my friends and family there. You know, it's big enough. Okay. <laughs> Would you have a Don Air? Are you familiar with what a Don Air is? What is a Don Air? Well, I think it's similar to a Euro, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, yeah. I remember when I went to Alberta for the first time, when I went to Edmonton, the, my buddy who lived there says, you got to try these Don Airs. They're everywhere. Because he had moved there from Winnipeg, and it was still a novelty for him. And it's just one of those things where it's like uh, uh, just a spindle of, of, like, shaved meat. It looks gross, but it was quite tasty. So, Mackling, what about you? Don Airs are a thing in Alberta. Now that you mention it, I remember people uh, talking about that. By the way, 4,142 kilometers to Zwatnay from uh, where I'm sitting right now. So get walking, Just need a good pair of shoes. You just need a good pair of shoes, that's all. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Well, you know, I lived in uh, British Columbia in the flood of the century in 1997, and I felt so bad about being away from home and being safe and secure in the Okanagan. So I think I would just be here. I think I would be in Minidosa, believe it or not, on my dad's old property. If I could move this house there, my dad was on the uh, eastern side of the valley overlooking... Uh, Minidosa Lake, and I always used to say, Dad, you have the best view. You have no idea you're in Manitoba. That's not a slight on where we live, but it it was just that pretty. Ten acres to myself and uh, whoever can come and join me. So that's where I would be. How about you, uh, McGarry? I was thinking, well, actually, I had a similar conversation yesterday. I was talking to this woman on uh, Bumble, the dating app Bumble, and uh, she said she was looking for a partner in crime. And I said, what are you, looking to rob a bank? Put him, put him up. This is a stick-up, you see? And uh, she said, well, where would you hide out if we, had to, if we robbed a bank and had to hide? And I said, I don't know. Uh, I've always wanted to go to Belgium. It looks pretty there, and I really like their beer. So that seems like as good enough a reason as any to go hide somewhere. Gee, I thought a golf course would be the number one pick for you. Oh, my God. What am I thinking? What was I thinking, Kelly? How did I not think of a golf course? You know, like, say, Augusta, maybe? You know, I would if I had to choose a golf course, I would I I would go with uh, the Players Championship. The, what is it? TPC Sawgrass. Yeah, Sawgrass. Yeah. yeah, that that would be that would be fun. Uh, and then I could have I would have time to perfect that island green. See how many yeah. balls I dump in the water. The water level would be significantly higher after I was finished <laughs> with it. <though. laughs> now, would your would your friends want to be on this vacation with this this place with you or not? Because this sounds like you might get frustrated for the first few weeks. Um, I well, if I can bring friends, yeah, that'd be great. Because <laughs> and if we get sick of each other, we could just scatter across the course. We don't have to be right beside each yeah. other. So take eighteen friends, one for each hole. <laughs> <laughs> awesome idea. They're talking about how as the weather warms, Greg, it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to avoid craving our usual spring and summertime routines. No question about it. What if, now think about this, what if we are one of the last parts of the continent to come out of this wave of infection from the novel coronavirus? The answer to that question, we are told, will be in the data. The virus is in charge. What are the numbers telling us? As parts of the United States edge towards a new normal, in some cases in the face of increasing numbers of COVID-19 cases, we all want somebody to tell us when this pandemic will slow enough 
for us to start doing the things we miss in our lives. As Manitoba announced one new case of COVID-19 yesterday, Dr. Brent Rusin touched on data points and the challenge of making predictions on timelines. We're continuing to work on the development of modeling in Manitoba. These models uh, can help us uh, plan and understand what things uh, may come, what numbers we may be able to expect. Uh, we can use uh, information from other jurisdictions, including national uh, data. Uh, but to be uh, useful modeling, we need to use Manitoba-specific data. And because we are uh, uh, behind, we are at different uh, aspects of our outbreak compared to many jurisdictions, um, our, uh, our data, our numbers have been quite low. Uh, so it's, it's difficult to come up with useful models with that type of, uh, those type of numbers. So we continue to work on it. Uh, we're going to uh, uh, try to share uh, some of that information as we get uh, more and more useful models uh, to present. Uh, but again, the, the biggest reason why we haven't uh, released that is because we are six weeks uh, behind other jurisdictions in the, in the outbreak trajectory. So again, that was Dr. Brent Rusin. He's, of course, Manitoba's Chief Provincial Health Officer, explaining that we are six weeks behind other jurisdictions in the battle that's still to come, and six weeks behind maybe uh, what they first saw the cases come, and then, of course, the measures they've introduced. Uh, we introduce sometimes around the same time as them, and so the timeline shifts depending on what angle you're looking at. Cynthia Carr is an epidemiologist and health policy expert with her company Epi Research here in Winnipeg, and she joins us now. Good morning, Cynthia. Good morning. Well, the numbers we are told are so critical, but what is the challenge of trying to customize the numbers for Manitoba based on our population and where we are in this outbreak? There are challenges and there are reasons for um, not sharing models that you don't have confidence in. So I know that right now we're hearing numbers every day um, and we're used to that, but that's not typically what we do. So, uh, and the reason for that is very small numbers um, can it seem like they add up quickly. You can say, you know, it doubled, it tripled. And also, so that makes people sort of fearful as, as to what's going on. But it's also hard to really generalize much from very small numbers. Every number is an individual, and that matters on the clinical side. That matters on the planning side in terms of what do we need for resources. But in terms of trying to take very small and still rare events in Manitoba and try to project that forward, that would be um, not useful at all. And if you look at other um, reports or reporting styles, as an epidemiologist, I deal with data all the time. And I can tell you that typically I am not allowed ever uh, to report anything where there's less than six cases or six deaths because the numbers are so rare, we can't really do anything with that. And when you hear somebody report a survey, they might say, um, you know, 80% of people said this and we're 95% confident. Well, that 95% confident actually refers to an equation saying that 95 times out of 100, we think the range is going to be between 78% and 82%. But if something's really rare, that confidence interval gets huge. And we could say, we're 95% confident it's between two and a thousand. 
But if I try to do anything with that information other than treat the patient in front of me and plan for what we need to do in the health system, it just causes confusion. So there's lots of good reasons to not, in our province, because we don't have the numbers such as in Toronto or Ontario or Quebec, to really be confident in, in, in making projections. And we don't want to scare people. We want to focus on what we need to do and why it's working without necessarily thinking about a highly unstable model that isn't really going to add anything of value to us as community members. We're seeing changes in some states uh, in the United States. We are also seeing frustration from small but vocal segments of the population in the U.S. and here in Canada demanding the opening of the economy. Some would argue that uh, they're using the data that we suggest we are having success with shelter-in-place strategies to justify their position. They're saying the crisis is being overblown. So what do we say to that? I do understand frustration, but uh, we, you know, need to work with Dr. Rusin and our premier because um, we all need to work together and stay healthy, and there would be no reason to sort of mislead. What I will say, one thing that's really interesting that's come out of a small country of Iceland is that they actually did random testing and found that 50% of positive cases were actually totally asymptomatic. So that is something that has helped us globally and we need to think about, that there could still be great possibility um, for spread in our population. And although we're very fortunate and we're seeing small numbers, we are learning more and more from that what the risk is. So the risk might not be for most of us to end up in the hospital. The risk might not be death for most of us. But the risk for transfer is still there. So until Dr. Rusin and others in our leadership and health system are confident that we have the right protective measures in place for those who are at highest risk, such as our staff in the healthcare system, our residents and staff at long-term care facilities, and the testing capacity to monitor that, we still need to be a little bit careful. We heard Dr. Rusin mention that we are six weeks behind uh, many other parts of the country. Uh, it seems like the first time we've heard him say six weeks. Does that sound accurate? To be candid, I replayed that clip over and over because I didn't feel clear what that meant. So what I would focus on, and I think that the focus of the healthcare system is, is making sure that we have enough um, personal protective equipment for people who need it, for enhancing as much as possible our testing and contact tracing capacity. And when he feels that those are up to speed so that he has confidence, as I said, in where the risk is and where we are at ensuring safety of those at highest risk, then he will feel more confident in sort of reducing measures in a stepwise approach. All right. Cynthia Carr, epidemiologist, health policy expert with her company Epi Research here in Winnipeg. Cynthia, thank you once again for visiting us. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks. Phone lines are open at 204-780-6868. Your chance to win a $50 gift card for Netflix. Call us now at 204-780-6868. Loren McNabb, what are we doing in our next segment?
Well, I think we're looking all looking for ways to help out. And if we can't, you know, sew masks or gowns or things like that or bring food to frontline workers, can we provide a little hope to those on the front line in COVID-19 and a little hope for those in Nova Scotia dealing with that mass shooting? And so our next guest from Headingley has a great idea. It kind of involves hugs or a virtual hug or hope. And we'll delve into that just after 745. And Mackling, who are we talking to at 837? 837, the one, the only, number 34, not Wade Miller, Hal Anderson, the 34th greatest Canadian of all time, our friend, our pal, you can hear him here every day from 1 until 4, but on Wednesdays we like to bring him in a little bit early so he can set the table for for the day and, and maybe even for the rest of the week. And then after Global News at 9 o'clock, we're going to speak to a group called Winnipeg Fighting COVID-19. This is a group of volunteers, of hobbyists, of makers who are calling on the community, anybody with access to a 3D printer, to help them out make PPE. So we'll learn about their efforts after Global News at 9. But now the lines are jammed at 204 $50 $50 gift card up for grabs for Netflix. And here is the question. In a new survey, 45% of people said they think you should wait until age 25 to do this. So again, people think you should wait until age 25 to do this. Les, what is it? Uh, start drinking. Start drinking. Great guess. But that's not the answer. No, that is not the answer. But that is a good guess. Lorena, how old were you when you had your first drink? Is that information that can be shared publicly? I feel like I was probably 13 or 14. It was junior high for sure. It was young. Mackling? Uh, 15. It was a club beer. Drank it all in one shot. Field in front of Isaac Brock Community Center. I won't say who I was with, uh, but uh, good morning, Adrian. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For me, believe it or not, it was 19. Lisa? Hello there. 45% of people say you should wait until the age 25 to do this. What is it? Get a credit card. Lisa, how old were you when you got a credit card? Ooh, 22. 22. You showed more patience than I did. You, Lisa, are correct. Nice. Nice. The answer is get a credit card. And uh, I confess, I was, you know how they, they set up shop in the universities? I was freshly 18. I saw the MasterCard booth. At University Center, and I signed up, and I remained in credit debt until age 41. So, Lisa, I'm going to put you on hold. Forte is going to get your details, all right? Thank you. Okay, stand by for that. Yeah, get a credit card. Greg, you suggested drive. Yes, I think that's the way a lot of us feel once we get to a certain age, looking back, right, and thinking, oh, boy, I never should have been driving at 16, 17, maybe even 18. So I think we get judgy. The older we get, it's not just McNabb on her judging porch with her basset hound on, sitting beside her on the rocking chair that's judgy. It's all of us get judgy about ourselves, about our kids, and the generation coming up behind us, I think, uh, Loren. Uh, speaking of judginess, club. Right? <laughs> hey, it's brute for people like me and you. 
<laughs> uh, no, I think you're right. Driving's a good one, and the drinking's not a bad one. Like I've often thought about, you know, that is that the right threshold, especially because there's an argument to be made now that, like, with as we evolve, I think the things that we may have done or tried at a certain age 25 years ago, that's moved up now, right? Our, we're maturing potentially later, and so we might want to look at these dates that we've had. Like 18 is a hard date for drinking, or 21 in the states as it might be. Are those the are those the right times to be using it and do we need to revisit that like is the 18 year old of 2020 the same as the 18 year old of 1950 when those laws are might have been first introduced my first drink uh, was an m i think it was no i think it was lgd labat genuine draft and it was at scandals on pembina and uh, i did it the same way as you greg i did it in one shot because for up until then i just i had i was I didn't want to drink, and I was always the D, the DD. Although in this case I wasn't, but I still wasn't drinking. And my buddies were harassing me. They weren't peer, I guess, peer pressuring me, but probably because they didn't expect me to fold. They just said, "Come on, just take a sip. You don't want a sip." And I got tired of being hounded relentlessly. So I said, "Fine, bring me a beer, and I'll down it." And I did that, and I did that five more times, and then. Uh, <laughs> Uh, at about 5 a.m., I visited the washroom and did something else uh, five more times, and I was unable to drink domestic beer for well over a decade because I developed, you know, an intolerance to a certain flavor. So, uh, thankfully, I was able to rediscover beer through, you know, I, like I was sitting at the kitchen. Well, because I, I didn't realize how many different kinds there were. Right? I yeah, just thought it all right. tasted the same. I thought it was all like club and bud and. All the sure. basic domestic beers, and then I was uh, sitting at the King's Head, and someone said, "Look, there's 28 beers here. Surely there's one that will be palatable for you." And the beer that turned out to be the one I liked was Hogarden. I referenced earlier. I like Belgian beer, uh, so that's what got me back into beer, and I've since developed a, a taste for others. But yeah, uh, drinking at age 25. Here's the thing, though: if you were to say restrict the age of drinking to 25, Loren, like it's unrealistic to think that they won't that kids won't do it anyway. No. No, that's true. And I and I I I'm just curious what age that's all starting at right now and whether or not just even the purchasing of it uh, at a young at an older age might make a difference. It would definitely change maybe your university experience. You wouldn't you wouldn't be having those university bars and and other things distracting you along the way because you couldn't go. Like I even know for myself, my first year of university was in Ontario and I went there as a Manitoban at 18, but the drinking age in Ontario was 19. And so my first year didn't not not that there wasn't drinking it's not like alcohol can't be brought into where you live it's just that i couldn't go out as much with all my friends unless i went to quebec and crossed the river to quebec and so uh yeah like it 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 definitely tempered what i did in that first year because i couldn't go into as many as places might not prevent you from doing it but your access to certain activities would be limited at least you stayed legal in terms of how you did things i was just as I confessed where and when I did that, I realized I broke at least two provincial statutes. So uh, fortunately, the, uh, you know, uh, what was it? The statute of limitations has uh, come into effect here. Uh, I, I'm, I, yeah, I can confess most of my sins uh, from the 1980s uh, comfortably right now. And by the way, are you having fun with the drumsticks there, Mackling? Sorry, I guess. Sorry. <laughs> no, honestly. I can't I can't help it. You know, I found the perfect fidget device though for you, McGarry. I'm gonna get you a tape measure. Oh <laughs> I've got a tape, tape measure. measures 
are amazing. Well, Trident is a fidgeting device. You can pull it in and out. McNabb, it's perfect for you. You can scratch your back with it. It's oh, that's a, a good idea. Oh, Built-in yeah. scra- back scratcher. You can uh, use it as a mock microphone. You can practice your putting with it. There's <laughs> all sorts of things you can do with a tape measure. So oh. I will put the drumsticks down and I will pick up my fidget tape measure instead. I have used the tape measure as a fidget toy. I usually fall back to the slinky. I kind of just, instead of like going back and forth between the hands, I kind of use it almost like a yo-yo when I'm sitting on the couch, just down to the ground, back up. Uh, although I, I was unable to avoid the temptation to spin it around once and then it got all tangled up and I had to throw it away and go buy a new one. So yeah, I think it cost 10 bucks for a new one. Maybe not. I got to be careful. Cheap. You got to be careful when you lock it though out and then when you unlock it and it comes snapping back it comes with a little bit of violence well there. yeah if so you, you can use careful. your tape measure as a putter that must be some powerful tape measure 745 well, it's a good one it's a gooder <laughs> Right now, Greg, we want to talk about uh, what was one of the most bizarre and uh, I think frightening police news releases we've received in a while. Well, I actually got a phone call or a text message from one of my buddies said, GMAC, what's going on on the north perimeter? I just saw scores of police cars up around North Main, and he laid out what he'd seen. And he, for sure, I saw a spike strip thrown down. Well, this is what it was. On April 20th at 8.41 a.m., members of the Winnipeg Police Service responded to the area of Bannerman Avenue and Charles Street after an injured elderly male had been seen laying in a back lane. Upon arrival, officers located the... 68-year-old male and determined that he had been run over by his own vehicle after it had it had been carjacked. The 68-year-old victim was getting into his vehicle when he was confronted by two suspects, a male and a female. He was subsequently struck with an object and pulled out of the car. The suspects then fled in the vehicle and drove it over the victim causing serious injuries and leaving him in the back lane. The victim was later transported to hospital in unstable condition after being found by police. Then what happened, McNabb? Well, then they shared with us that after that, that they responded and they uh, observed the female in the stolen vehicle. The patrol units were utilized to try to stop that vehicle, but the car fled at a high rate of speed. And so then there, of course, was a pursuit. And then they later received a call about uh, from a resident in a different neighborhood after they heard a call for help within a garbage bin. And officers responded and identified the female as the suspect in the carjacking. And according to police, it's believed she had become stuck in the residential garbage bin while attempting to hide from police after running from that stolen vehicle. So she is a 16-year-old female. She's been arrested and charged with numerous charges like robbery and aggravated assault. If that story's not crazy enough in terms of what happened, the victim, and where the suspect ended up in that garbage bin, there's another incident that they were also talking about, uh, Greg, when it comes to a, a carjacking also on the same day. Yeah, same day, uh, Winnipeg Police Service responded to the Health Sciences Centre after a 59-year-old male reported he'd been robbed of his vehicle with his 88-year-old father still 
in the car. He was seated in the passenger seat. The 59-year-old male had been unloading items from his vehicle when a male suspect confronted him and stole the vehicle. HSC security attempted to stop the theft, but the male suspect drove off with the 88-year-old male still in the SUV. Soon after, a general patrol unit located the stolen SUV traveling on Notre Dame Avenue. When the vehicle came to a stop in traffic, the 88-year-old male was able to escape with minor injuries. After falling, he was transported to hospital in stable conditions. Other general patrol units, along with the central traffic unit, were utilized to try and stop and contain the vehicle. The stolen vehicle subsequently rammed a police vehicle and fled at a high rate of speed. A pursuit ended and a second police vehicle was rammed during the incident. The stolen SUV was loader, later pardon me, located abandoned in the Daniel McIntyre neighborhood. The investigation is continuing by members of the Major Crimes Unit. Absolutely unreal. Two situations in the city of Winnipeg uh, that are eerily similar uh, about an hour apart from one another. Yeah, we're just looking at uh, globalnews.ca. Uh, just going back in November, where the headline was Winnipeg dealing with disturbing spike in carjackings, where at that time, uh, in just one year, the number of carjackings in the city more than doubled from 50 in 2017 to 103 last year. And by the end of August 2019, they already had 76 reports of carjackings. And when you hear about these two particular stories, uh, it's really scary, the, the notion that there are people who want to do this. And I, I didn't realize, like I forgot about this story, that uh, up to 76 reports of carjackings last year just by August alone. Um, and then the fact that I, uh, the, the getting stuck in the garbage bin as well, I think is, uh, I don't know how to, my, my initial reaction to that is I kind of want to laugh, but I also feel guilty laughing about that, given the severity, Loren, of this uh, situation involving somebody who got run over by their own vehicle. Well, if proven in court, this suspect who was attempting to hide from police uh, in this garbage can, you know what, some might argue you get what's coming to you, and that's sort of how uh, trash like this, if you want to call it that, people who want to commit these kinds of crimes uh, have to pay for pay the price for it. I've often said a carjacking is one of my worst possible scenarios to think of because you kind of feel like your car is the safe place. And so we want to bring this back to the public's attention because we were talking Monday with members of the Bear Clan and the Winnipeg Police Union about how crime is still very much high and prevalent in this community. We, may, we might not have hard stats to back that up, but we have anecdotes, we have evidence, we had the Bear Clan saying the kind of things they're seeing. And these carjackings are a reminder. We had Constable Rob Carver last fall when we did these stories, Brett, talking to us about the things we need to remember when we're approaching our vehicle, say in a parking lot, what to do once you're in it, you know, keeping your doors locked, your windows up at intersections. The thing that's kind of additionally concerning about these two incidents is the time of day. So the first one we told you about where the man was run over in his back lane, that was at 8.41 a.m., so that's a perfectly reasonable time to not, you know, it's not in the middle of the night. And the second one was at 9.25 a.m. outside the HSC um, after what sounds like a son and his father had been carjacked. So those, the time of day in those is, is additionally concerning. 
Well, and the fact that not only that the time of day didn't dissuade any of this activity, the fact that there was an an elderly gentleman in the front seat of the car, like you used to get a sense, maybe it was a false sense, but you used to get a sense there was some code of ethics in the criminal world. And the idea that the guy still fled with this gentleman in the front seat, like how perverse a crime is that and then you go back to the earlier one where the the, the young woman was uh, caught uh, eventually in the garbage can you run over this individual that you stole his car from are you like are you kidding me like the 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 lines the boundaries of what people are prepared willing and able to do uh, just is more uh, is as concerning as the prevalence for it happening it just feels as though it's all on the table right now whatever i need to do to do what i want to do right now is a okay there's there's zero code of conduct and it's uh, quite frankly it's sickening Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Loren, what is this music heralding? It is heralding. My goodness, it's heralding the Winnipeg Jets. Every time you hear this, you can't help but think of uh, the Jets and them coming onto the ice. And also my dream of one day learning to play this on the synthesizer, but I digress. (laughs) He was the first overall draft choice of the Winnipeg Jets in June of 1981. He signed his first professional contract at the intersection of Portage and Maine. April 16th of this year marked 30 years since our next guest played his last game with the Winnipeg Jets. I can't read this without pumping my fist. Three days earlier, he marked an incredibly important day in his battle against cancer, Greg. Yeah, Dale Howarchuk is beloved in this part of the world, and he joins us now from his home in King City, Ontario. Good morning, Dale. Good morning. How are you? We're doing great. It's so wonderful to be speaking with you. Let's start with the obvious first question. How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. You know, uh, the first week uh, after my chemo treatments are tough, but it's been uh, it's been about eight days now, so uh, starting to feel better. And uh, it's kind of been the case that when you go through chemo, uh, you know, you, you get your chemo for a couple of days, and then uh, you know you kind of deplete you for a week and then you build yourself back up for the next week and then go do it again. So, um, it's kind of nice that, uh, you know, from my first diagnosis, uh, at the end of August, that, uh, this was the original plan and, uh, you know, I arrived at the end of it. So it seemed like a long way off at the time, but, uh, here I am now and, uh, you know, I'm feeling pretty good. Thanks. When your son, Eric put up the picture of you ringing the bell of hope, on Twitter, the support from across North America was instantaneous. That's got to help, right? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been incredible. Uh, you know, the whole time, you know, so many people have reached out. Uh, you know, through the hockey world, you know, friends, and uh, I know a lot of Manitoba. And, you know, it's uh, and especially you hear from people you haven't heard from in years, and then you remember different times. You know, I mean, I lived in Manitoba so long, and you know, I've been to almost every part of it, so I uh, met a lot of people along the way, and, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why I fell in love with the, the province, was uh, the people really seemed to make that province go. Well, it's so great to hear that, and, and the Manitobans will appreciate knowing that, because whether uh, you, I'm sure you appreciate this, but, you know, it's hard to be a 
a superstar, to be someone that people admire from afar and sort of feel like you're part of their family or at least their their province in some way, Dale. And so I'm curious, when you have such a private battle like cancer, is it hard that it's publicly shared with people and known or is that is that helped in some ways? Uh, well, at first you don't know. At first it really feels like a death sentence and then uh, and then you realize that, you know, uh, this this thing is beatable. A lot of people have beat cancer, and uh, you know my prognosis was not good. My uh, my surgeon was pretty uh, pretty blunt, you know, right at the start. And um, but he said, you know, at least you have a little bit of, you know, you're still younger. You got that on your side, but uh, we won't know till we get down the road. But uh, you know what? Um, when you get something like this, you know, and and you in a until you really experience it, it's like, you know, you want to be able to help people, you know, especially because uh, it's not easy and it's a, uh, it's a battle, it's a challenge and uh, there's good days, there's rough days, but I mean, uh, you know, everybody has that, but uh, this is like, a, you know, this is a battle to stay alive. And uh, sometimes I think, you know, people that have cancer diagnosis, you know, can succumb to that. So if I can, you know, reiterate to them that, you know, there's some tough days for sure. And because people have reiterated that to me, you know, that had similar sur- surgeries and diagnosis. And they, they, they told me through some of the chemos, man, you're going to feel like you're, you're on your deathbed and you got to, you got to keep pulling yourself up. And, uh, you know, I went through that and, uh, it's, it's, it's doable. It's beatable. I mean, we're all in this quarantine right now with COVID-19, but, I've been in this quarantine for eight months, so that part's doable as well. You know, I'm still going. Well, you use the terminology battle challenges, and that's something uh, that us in the media have maybe been guilty of for years is is maybe uh, grabbing and borrowing uh, from war and and other uh, other other things more serious in life in order to build some hype around sporting events. And this, you mentioned COVID-19, so much of what we're going through right now is perspective gaining and creating perspective for us. I can only imagine the perspective you've gained over the last uh, eight months, Dale. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's life-changing, life-altering, but, uh, you know, I'm here on the other end, you know, and that's all I can tell you is that, uh, you know, sometimes I, I hope, you know, I can live so many years that I can look back on this, that, this, the, you know, these eight, nine months seem just like a blimp in my life, you know, but, uh, you know, it's one day at a time and whatever challenge is there, uh, you know, I'll be ready and up for it. So that's all you can do. So for the surgery that you had, uh, part of your colon was removed, as well as your entire stomach. So yeah, how does that work? Well, you, you know, your esophagus, esophagus just is connected right to your small intestine. And, uh, you know, at first I was like, man, uh, you know, I, I had the same question. How does that work? But, uh, you know, I talked to people. I talked to a guy. um, uh, a few different guys, but uh, also there's a former hockey player who used to play in Detroit way, way back when. Uh, Nick Libet was his name, and Nick's still alive, and uh, Nick had this done like 30 years ago, you know, and uh, so, you know, I got a lot of good insight from him and uh, a few other guys and uh, that uh, other people that have had uh, their stomachs taken out, and uh, honestly, it's, you know, it's, it's frightening at first, and, uh, and it's an adjustment, but... Uh, now it doesn't seem so bad, you know. I mean, I was at a point where 
in September, I couldn't, I couldn't eat. I had to live off a feed tube, you know, that, that was nourishing me, my body to be able to go and handle chemo and the chemo kind of knocked down my cancer enough that I could start eating a bit again. But there was a time like I couldn't even look at food. I didn't think I even, I, I could, just couldn't smell it. Like it just turned me right off and it, I didn't know if I'd ever like, like it again. So that was, that was a tough time. And, uh, those were tough days, but when my cancer got knocked down and, uh, you know, opened up something where I could start eating a bit, then things seemed to change. And then, uh, when my stomach came out, you know, there was, uh, it was a big difference. Actually, the, you just eat smaller amounts and maybe a little more often, but, uh, my taste is back, my appetite's back, and, uh, you know, I'm thankful for that. It's fascinating to hear you talk, Dale, about the idea, and, and you're so right. I'm sure anyone who's been through this, but when, you, when you're faced with a prospect, it sounds frightening to have your stomach removed, and then to hear you say that, you know, you get used to it, you adjust is an important part of the process. What's your advice to anyone else who might be going through a cancer diagnosis? Maybe they've just received one, or they're in, they're in the middle of their treatment, and they're having some of those darker days that you referenced. Yeah, you just you just got to hang in there. Um, just know that uh, it, it'll get better, you know, and have faith and have trust that, uh, you know, um, it's kind of like no pain, no gain, you know, when we were young trying to build our bodies so we could be hockey players, you know. But this is, uh, this is these are times when you, you're like, you really do, you really feel like you're, you're, you're on your deathbed at times. And uh, I went through that a few quite a few times and uh, you know you just pull yourself back up and then once you once you go through it once and then you you have a, a you know some moments later where you're starting to feel better it kind of really inspires you it, it, yeah okay this can be done and you know that's that would be my message to people as bad as it seems at certain times that can change and you can change that with doing the right things do what your doctors say and having the right attitude yeah, superheroes were were exploring uh, that notion for the last uh, several weeks here with the Blue Bombers. They've uh, sort of turned over the, what was going to be their marketing campaign here to the real superheroes on the front line. And Dale, you obviously had a major interaction with the medical professionals in your community. Uh, that's eye-opening as well. When we get the platitudes that uh, you're used to getting as an athlete, when you see these people working their 12, 14, 16-hour days, uh, you realize who the special people in our world are. Yeah, there's no, there's no question. So many things have changed, and uh, you know, uh, we, we, you know, I'm so thankful. I think everybody's so thankful for these people. Uh, you know, on the front lines, really putting it out there. Like, you know, it's. Uh, I mean, and I mean everybody that's working and working hard right now because. Some of us, you know, like, you know, we can't work right now. And, you know, it's a little bit frightening for some people, the older people, some people that are, you know, the health are, is compromised, like myself. Like I kind of, while I'm going through chemo and that, like it's very, you know, I got to be so careful, you know, with my immune being suppressed. But there's a lot of people out there going out there, getting up every day and doing it, you know. So, I mean, things really changed here and, you know, I mean, it, mankind's always found a way, and I think we'll find a way. I, this, this one might just take a little bit longer, and and it might it might require a change from people on how you know they live life at one time. I think sometimes we've uh, we've got so immersed in you know the almighty buck that we'll, we'll 
will go anywhere to do it, you know, and I think uh, the globalization of things is going to change a little bit here. And because, uh, you know, there's things happening in the world that, you know, we don't know about, we can't control. And the next thing you know, they're they're right on your doorstep or you're on their doorstep. And, and uh, you know, here we are. I mean, it, it's amazing how, you know, what was happening in China in January and nobody in in North America really had anything to say about it until it got here in March. You know, there was no, there should have been, you know, more panic in the, in, in the times before. I mean, the Americans were worried about impeaching Trump. We were, we were worried about uh, pipelines and people on railway tracks. And uh, next thing you know, now we got a pandemic here and, and nobody, nobody even threw out a big warning. Like that's just people too caught up in their own world. Like, you know, I think we got to get to a point where, hey, we can do enough in Canada. I don't even know why Alberta. Alberta's got so much oil. Just just supply our whole country. If I had to pay a few more bucks at the gas station, I'd be fine with that, you know, if that's going to help Alberta. You know, and same thing with our food industry. Like, you know, we're bringing food from all over the world. Like, why don't we build the biggest greenhouses in some of these geographical areas across our, our country and uh, create a million jobs and uh, we'll have our own food? I think that's what the future is telling us. And I just hope that if we get a vaccine or we get, you know, a miracle cure that mankind doesn't go back to the way it was. I mean, changes have to be made. Dale Howarchuk for MP, maybe PM with a, with a perspective <laughs> like that. Thanks, Dale. We didn't get a chance to talk hockey, but maybe next time. You know how much we love you here in Manitoba. We uh, know that you feel it and uh, we hope to see you in these parts uh, sooner than later. Yeah, I hope so, too. Okay, thanks, everybody. Stay safe. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. We were sharing with you just after 8 o'clock this morning the story of two brazen carjackings that happened in Winnipeg on Monday. One was just after 8 a.m., and according to police involved... Two suspects who hit the 68-year-old driver just after he was getting out of his car near Bannerman Avenue and Charles Street. The suspects then ran over the victim, Loren. Yeah, and we're hearing from police that one person was arrested in that. We were telling you about how she was actually found in a garbage can. Residents heard someone yelling from a garbage can. Turned out to be one of the suspects. So we'll get more details on that arrest uh, later today. But that same morning near HSC... Another carjacking. It involved a driver who had been unloading some stuff from his SUV when a suspect confronted him and stole the car. The really frightening part about this story is that the driver's 88-year-old dad was still in the passenger seat. Thankfully, Hendrik Hack was able to escape, and his son, Ernie, is now here to share just how it all went down. Good morning, Ernie. Good morning. First, if we could just, how's everybody doing? How's your dad? Well... For my dad, uh, fortunately, I mean, he uh, has dementia, and uh, that short-term memory loss uh, actually helps him uh, not remember what actually happened. So for him, that's kind of a blessing. Uh, Ernie, uh, wow, thanks for uh, this. Um, I'm I'm trying to keep it together here, just imagining what must have been going on in your mind when this was all going down. Do you mind sharing uh, what happened when the suspect approached and, and what you were thinking and, and the sense that was going on that this was this was indeed a serious and a, and a dangerous situation? Yeah, sure. 
Actually, I, I wasn't right by the vehicle. I wasn't. Uh, the police report's a little bit off, but, I mean, I was standing on the passenger side of the vehicle towards the front of it trying to get uh, the attention of uh, the security guards to ask them to bring a wheelchair out for my father. When I saw the security guards looking past me and one of them yelled something, I turned to my right and started to look behind me. As I looked behind me and looked at my vehicle, it was already starting to drive away. And I and the security guards ran towards the vehicle to try and open the doors, which tend to lock when you put the vehicle into drive. There was no way to get the doors open and the vehicle sped away. What was going through your head when the thief took off with your dad in the vehicle? Well, at first, it's a sense of urgency and, and anger to try and do something. Once it left, it's, uh, it's despair, it's desperation. Uh, at that point, you're just wondering what is going to happen next. Well, you mentioned your dad has dementia, and that's been at least a, a blessing, if I can use that word, and him not necessarily recalling the incident or, or having those memories stick with him a couple of days later, Ernie. But, but what were his faculties like you know, to handle a situation like this? Because from the sounds of it, he was able to escape and, and may have known what was going on at the time? Well, actually, he, it wasn't an escape. They, the driver of the vehicle, from what I was told, and at that time, from his account, he was actually forced out of the vehicle, uh, which, for short of a better word, pushed. And because he can't walk without a walker, he fell to the pavement and got injured on his head and his knee, which paramedics at the scene were able to get there quickly. Some construction workers uh, must have called 911 when they witnessed this, and uh, he was treated at the scene. So uh, he's doing okay in physically then, Eric? This is uh, something that he'll be able to, to brush off, as I can imagine he's had to brush off a, a number of things in his 88 years on this planet? Yeah, yeah he's uh, pretty resilient, and uh, he checked out okay at uh, the emergency at uh, Health Sciences Center. So we were able to uh, continue on that day with his procedure at HSC. The staff there was wonderful, and I have to give kudos to Winnipeg Police Service, too. They were uh, right on their game. Uh, they, um, so he, he's back at his personal care home, uh, again, with not much recollection of the incident, and uh, it could have it definitely turned out much, much worse than it did. Why are you sharing this with us? What do you want Winnipeggers to hear or learn from this incident? What I, what I want people to know about is that something as simple as this, which you would never expect to happen. I mean, you don't expect for the 20 seconds that you're standing out of a vehicle with someone else still in the vehicle. And we're not talking a child or a pet or something like that here, that someone would actually uh, take your vehicle away with that person still in the vehicle. So there's no time, in my opinion now, that is safe to leave your car running. You exit your vehicle you're probably best off to shut it off and if maybe so if there's someone in there just lock it one of the things that still stands out for me is the time of day and i don't know if i would have had the expectation that you know after 9 a.m for something like this to happen um i agree with you you have a tendency to become complacent at certain times of the day because you think that morning or daylight hours that doesn't typically happen but i don't think there's a time where that couldn't happen. We have a fairly big problem in Winnipeg, not that that's unlike any other bigger city where uh, addictions and, uh, uh, and personal issues tend to make people do things that they wouldn't typically do. So that I don't think is really dependent on the time of the day.
Ernie, have you has your dad ever been a victim of of crime before? Are you is this anything that you've ever had to deal with in the past? No, I think my father. I mean, my father's gone through a lot. Being eighty eight years old, I mean, he's gone through a world war and stuff like that. So I'm sure he's uh, seen his share of uh, atrocities. But no, he hasn't had anything like that ever happen to him. I've had a, a vehicle stolen once, but not under these circumstances where it becomes that serious when you have someone stolen the vehicle and someone that really can't just do something for themselves typically to the point where they're going to maybe intervene with this. Um, it's, it's, pretty, it, it's pretty serious. All right, Ernie. Well, hey, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to, to tell us about this. I know it's a harrowing story, and I'm sure you don't want to necessarily relive it. Uh, so the fact that you came on to tell our listeners about it, we very much appreciate it. All right? Yeah, thanks very much. Ernie Hack joining us live on 680 CJOB. And you can read more on this story at cjob.com, globalnews.ca, slash Winnipeg. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.